hospitality, inviting those into your home, inviting people into your lives. Sometimes this is not an easy thing to do. Sometimes this is an awkward thing to do. Sometimes we think we are insufficient in and of ourselves or what we might have or we don't have and therefore don't necessarily practice it. But the Word of God paints a picture of Christians as being hospitable people. I've had the opportunity both internationally and stateside to travel as a missionary and encounter some very, very hospitable people. I've stayed in more homes than I can probably count. I have many memories from comical to refreshing to scary to heartbreaking and heartwarming. I have memories of generosity, household particularities, cultural oddities, and awkward family uniformity. And this would describe just my travel throughout the good old USA. Because I'm not from any other country, and in keeping consistent with what Jackie and I teach our children, I will not call any of my experiences with people, families, or cultures outside of this country anything but different, unique, or maybe just not my cup of tea. I remember being in Russia one time. It was actually a, a time that I'd seen Jackie. We were engaged, and I had quickly flown out to see her. She was not in any correspondence. She was not internet reachable, and I, I flew out to see her, and we were teaching uh, our way in which to go in to reach this village that we were at just right before the Ural Mountains was through teaching them English, interacting with their school, um, and such. And eventually, I being a leader from the organization with which they traveled, and she was staying over there, I got invited to a home. This would happen quite often. Sometimes these invitations or these home visits were not planned. They were not in your itinerary, per se. They just happened. And sometimes these uh, visits happen. Come to our house, have a meal. You don't know what to expect. You just know that you have already finished your meal and you are full, but now you're going to another home and you're going to eat again. You have no idea what this is going to look like. You don't know what the room is going to look like. In your mind, as an American, you're thinking, okay, stay away from water, stay away from vegetables that might have been washed with water. You don't want to be in a place where something hits you, and it's not necessarily in Jesus' name, and you've got to leave. <laughs> okay? So I'll leave that there. Um, however, I was invited, and this was probably 9 or 10 o'clock at night because the sun did not set where we were. It never actually got to being completely set. So it's 9 or 10 o'clock at night. I find myself traveling and walking down into this village into another house, and I walk into a room, and this room is filled with probably 10 people too many. It's this little dining room, and you've got these smiling faces as you're walking in, and they're presenting before you this platter of food. And there's probably, you know, two to three to maybe four courses a food that is probably not recognizable to your American palate. And so you go through the psychology of saying, I'm going to eat this, I'm going to eat this, I'm going to eat this. This will go down. In Jesus' name, this will stay down. <laughs> and you're commanding your stomach to say, you know what, these people have these smiles on their faces. They've invited maybe extended family. The village, whoever, is going to be there. And you're there because they are welcoming you into their home. And they're not just saying, this is my living room. What they're stating with that is saying, this is my life. Thank you for coming to my country. These here, these are my people. This is what my hands have prepared. This is my food. But it's more than my food. I love you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for sharing with us. That, my friends... It's the only thing sometimes that gets you to a very unrecognizable third course of your dinner and a dessert that has no sweeteners in it <laughs> at all. I've discussed that from the public many times. That being said, there was an instant bond that was clearly beyond our geographical or cultural interests or parameters. For the most part, we did not dress alike. Our outward appearances 
were different. Our homes were not the same size. Amenities offered were very different. Our tidiness and preferences of cleanliness were very different. And yet, we were more than welcomed into their homes to sit at their tables and to share their lives. Why? We were united in the truth. Jesus had a tangible effect on our lives. We proclaimed the truth. What we said about Jesus, the gospel story, lined up with what we did because of Jesus. And we walked in the truth. God's Spirit had awakened us from death to life. That was where our bond was. That was where this joy came from. That was where the smiles came from. It's what made me, as I leave, and I hug them, and I thank them, and more importantly, I thank my friend who took the food off of my plate sometimes. Gave me a smile because they were rejoicing that the gospel was being proclaimed in their schools to kids who went to homes who had no gospel. We rejoiced because of what God had done in our lives. That was our common bond. And this is precisely where we find ourselves in Third John. As the apostle writes his letter to a Gentile brother in Christ named Gaius, where Second John, as Pastor Aaron talked about last week, was written to a church, addressing the local body as a whole and discouraging hospitalities to false teachers. Third John is addressed to an individual person and commends his faithfulness and hospitality to the right people, brothers in Christ. Yet, they were strangers to Gaius. We might understand these brothers or strangers as being itinerant missionaries today. Margaius was worshiping in a smaller church, most likely a house church. And so the letter, if I were to summarize these 15 verses, it's not too difficult to understand as the text is pretty clear. John had heard from some traveling missionaries or these evangelists that Gaius had hosted them in such a manner that it was praiseworthy. They came back. They had gone out. They had seen Gaius. He had hosted them. They said, wow, this man loves Jesus. So much so that when he went back, it wasn't just that, hey, look what we did and shared and the gospel did a work. They said, the person who hosted us, who already had Jesus that we didn't have to evangelize, I'm going to talk about him to the whole church. And John takes note of their hospitality, not just the work of the Spirit in new lives regenerated. So John encourages Gaius to continue to treat those who travel as missionaries in the same manner as he did the first set of missionaries, by loving them and showing them hospitality in the name of Christ, and providing for their meals, and sending them on their way, or even paving their way to their next destination. And he proceeds in a letter to address a man named Diotrephes, who had received an initial letter from John, but brushed it aside as something that was meaningless. Can you imagine in that day, we were obviously on this side of canonized scripture, knowing who the apostles are or not, but you get a letter from somebody who had been with Jesus, the youngest of the disciples, then apostles. This is John, and you get a letter from him, and you see it come, and someone delivers that to you, and you're like, eh, and you chuck it. You throw it out. It's nothing to you. This is what Diotrephes did. He basically says, eh, I'll brush it aside. It's meaningless. It has nothing to say to me, let alone others in the church. And so John rebukes him, stating that he is acting selfishly, causing division amongst the church, even desiring to kick some out because they are not in line with his personal views. And John notes that even traveling missionaries aren't being welcomed by him. And then he proceeds to close a letter by commending a man named Demetrius to Gaius, who is of the opposite character as Diotrephes. He's carrying the letter of 3 John to Gaius. So he's, that, he's the one who's traveling, actually, and delivering this letter. And John points out that Demetrius is he's trustworthy because many testify to his character. Not to mention that when you see him, the truth itself testifies in and through Demetrius. 
If that weren't enough, John the Apostle backs him. And so he closes out the letter by saying, he looks forward to seeing Gaius and friends face to face, as the pen and ink just won't cut it when true fellowship is to take place. So just when you think at the beginning, beginning of this letter that, hey, this is finally a church that's having a letter written to it, man, this is, this is going in a good trajectory, it's really good, you come in as the second half of the letter, kind of the meat of the letter comes into play, and you see, wow, there's conflict here too. I think a lot of times... When we look at the American church today, or even churches across our world, we think the grass is so much greener. Oh, if we were like the New Testament church, we'd be amazing. We think through that and we're like, wow. But have you read the letters of the New Testament church? There is constantly agita. There's constantly conflict. You constantly see the apostles saying, no, this is who Christ really is. Stop acting this way. Hey, you two, break it apart. Hey, God, kick that person out because they're not representing Christ. This is constantly throughout the New Testament letters. And it's not hidden here in this letter either. So when people say, oh, I wish we were just like the New Testament church, oh, trust me, we are. (laughs) I'll leave that one there, Pastor Aaron. So I would like to walk through these first 15 verses, and the only 15 verses, and look at three individuals John addresses or mentions, and we could surely learn much from how John interacts in the text. First, there is Gaius. John's love and affinity for Gaius is clear, and it overflows. It literally just spills out in his initial greeting. In verse 1, John greets him as the beloved Gaius, Gaius, whom I love in the truth. This affinity is not driven by trivial things, such as bonding over his favorite teas or coffees, or, hey, have you heard about the new linens that are in the market down the street? No, John follows his greeting by stating that he is overjoyed, meaning he emphasizes his joy for Gaius in two consecutive verses in both verse 3 and in verse 4. But the catalyst for this joy is that Gaius is, and this should be a familiar phrase as we've walked through First and Second John, he is in the truth, or even walking in the truth. If you remember the greeting in 2 John, you can just turn a page back, or maybe it's on the same fold of your Bible there. John begins his letter in 2 John this way, The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So he's putting almost a person on who that truth is. In other words, Christ, the truth, is abiding in them, and they are walking it out, living and abiding in Christ, which is the truth. And so you see John again reiterates in his letters how important the truth is. So he's overjoyed that Gaius is still professing the real Christ, the truth, and this truth has had a tangible impact on his life. What John is doing there is he's tying together word and deed. What they're saying about Christ is being lived out in their life. Word and deed. They must go together. We cannot just be Christ proclaimers, proclaiming right things about Christ, but that needs to take effect in our hearts and work itself out in actions towards each other. And so John, yet again in his letters, this isn't new, is emphasizing both word and both deed. This is where 1 John, he might actually tell Gaius or commend him for walking in the light and not in darkness. But this is a wonderful greeting. I think about uh, Pastor Aaron and I were talking just a few days ago as he was reflecting on the passage and we kind of go through it and we talk back and forth. He goes, what if we greeted each other that way? I'd walk into the office, Beloved Aaron! (laughs) How are you doing? I don't know why I sounded like Santa there, by the way. (laughs) Beloved Aaron! 
<laughs> it would sound pretty weird, right? That'd be kind of strange. But the understanding is that we're so joyful in how we bond over the reality of who Christ is and what he's done in our lives that it is exciting. I don't necessarily want all of you to go out and always be loved with so-and-so or sister or brother so-and-so. When you say sister or brother so-and-so, even that, that might be uncomfortable for a different generation, the intent there is to say we are grounded in the same family which is rooted in Christ. That's the point. And it should bring joy to us. It should be. It's not, oh, brother Kevin. Mm. Hmm. No, there should be joy in that. There should be joy in that. Uh, when Sam Dyer visited uh, this summer, and um, I, I've never known Sam. I did not know the founding pastor, Bob Dyer. He's spoken of extremely well, and we got to see Sam this summer. Never met him, and Aaron and I had the opportunity to go out with him, and we went to PJ's, and we sat down, had a burger, and we just talked. And it was our first kind of prolonged conversation with him, and we talked, and we talked, and we talked, and we talked. What do we talk about? What has God done in your life? What are the things God has brought you through and in? What is God doing in your life now? What about you? My life, my life. God's done this and he's done this. He's overcome this. I struggled with this, but God is this. And all that was was banter about God and his, good, his goodness for four hours. It was like they were kicking us out for the, like the 16th glass of water and 15th bathroom trip. But we rejoiced over who Christ was in our lives and what he was doing. This is with somebody who to me was a complete stranger. I've talked with many a missionary over my life, uh, but Sam, and sitting down with him, it was a treasure because you just heard him exude the goodness of God and what he had done. And so a question to us, and our friendships that we consider so endearing and close, is Christ at the center? What brings us joy in the friendships that we have? Are the majority of our deep-rooted friendships, or what we would call deep-rooted friendships, with people who do not follow Christ? It's a question for you to examine because it's a revealer of where your heart is. What brings you joy? People who talk about Christ or people who don't? That's for all of us. I'm not saying we don't have any friends who do not know Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But the deep-rooted ones, the ones that sustain through our trials and our tribulations, we know that Christ is what brings us through those and ministers to us in the midst of those. Who are those next to us? Do they resonate Christ? So as Christians, we are knit together as a body of believers with specific intent to pour into each other's lives with the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given each and every one of us. You have something to offer a friendship because the Holy Spirit, upon your conversion, has given you a gift for the purposes of building up the body of Christ. You have something to offer. Namely, God's Spirit working in you and through you for Christ's purposes. In verses 5 through 8, John's greeting leads right into his commending of Gaius because he has heard of his hospitality. Here we get right to it. After just the greeting, he says, Your hospitality is what I want to commend you for, to the brothers in Christ. Again, they were strangers to Gaius. They were friends of John, but... They are brothers to those who walk in the truth. So John doesn't just say to host them and be hospitable. But he's saying that our hospitality in the second half of verse 6 should overflow such that when they leave, we do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. In a manner worthy of God. Translation, load them up. Provide for their needs. Give them abundant blessings so that there isn't a concern, at least until their next place in rest and ministry. 
Coming up in a different setting than necessarily our church, I was in a Baptist, uh, I was in a charismatic setting, excuse me, and I'd been in many of charismatic churches. One thing I loved that they did is if they knew that you had a need, from the pulpit they would say, hey, go ahead and shake brother so-and-so's hand. Encourage them on their way. He's got some needs. And you go up and Brother Bob would come up to you and you'd shake your hand and, and you'd take your hand away and there's like a $20 bill in there. And you're like, whoa! I like these handshakes. And you start to shake as many people's hands as you can. And then you're like disappointed when somebody else comes up with like a dollar bill. But the reality is they were so encouraging as they shook your hand and sent you on your way. Again, I'm not saying we should practice that here, per se. But I remember at uh, Aaron's ordination, we had the breaking bread together afterwards. And I remember going into the kitchen, following my nose to the brisket. And after everybody had eaten, Steve Tyson made sure that I did not leave unless this, this huge thing was full of beef and brisket and chicken and barbecue and whatever was left. He says, no, I'm not, I'm not keeping it. You take as much as you can. It was overflowing. It took me a solid two days to eat that, by the way. But his point, his point was, hey, I want to make sure that you were cared for and loved well. Know that here's what you can do. Here's what it is. I'm loading you up. I'm sending you on your way. Know that you're loved. He did the same thing with Aaron, who got a bigger tray than I did. <laughs> We're currently working through some of that. Pray for our office. However, we move on to verse 7, and John actually recommends that those who do travel, these evangelists, and proclaim Christ, to not take money from Gentiles. Now, that might seem odd, but in this context, Gentiles um, is kind of shorthand for unbelievers, those who just don't know Christ at all. That's what he's saying here. And in the first century, century you had many pagan philosophers that what they would do as a means of income is they, they would itinerate as well. And so they had their philosophies and their rhetoric of the day, and they would espouse that, and they would make sure that they would stand in to wherever the area of popularity was, and they would sit there, and they would let people know the goings-on of the day, what they thought about it, um, how amazingly intelligent they were by the words that they used, and they would let everybody know that. And then afterwards, in essence, they would get paid for doing so. It'd be like collecting an offering. And so what John is saying is, hey, if you're going around and these people who are gathering and listening to these philosophers, if they're treating you like as if you've got new rhetoric of the day, that this gospel, this Jesus message, is just one of these other things that you are to think about, don't take money from them. You're wasting your time. Your affiliation with them, the optics of what that might look like is that you're partnering with people who come from a polytheistic culture whose gods are many and not Christ. He's saying, don't take money from them. I don't want you associating with them in that context, in that intimate way. That exchanging of funds? No. That isn't good. And so, the gospel is at stake, and appearances played a key role as the world looked on and the gospel was spread. And so John is conveying what Paul did in 2 Corinthians 6.14. We're probably familiar with this verse. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? That's John's terminology there. Light and darkness. Paul picks up on that. And so John loved Grace because he was a team player. He had it written all over his Team Jesus jersey. And in verse 8, John wants him to continue to partner with and support anyone who is, and he uses these words, a fellow worker. A fellow worker like these strangers. John uses this term we in verse 8. He is saying that when we take care of those who preach Christ, we become partners in the ministry that happens as a result. Now, we understand this quite clearly. We talk in terms of that pronoun we, right? So when we think about sporting events, it's the fall, right? There's um, football, that's right. There's football that's going on right now, okay? 
And even this morning, I was talking with Dave. Where is he? I was talking with Dave about Penn State. I like Penn State. I enjoy Penn State. They lost. I easily and quickly switched into the vernacular. Yeah, we just didn't capitalize on this. And we just didn't have a good offense that, that day. Or we didn't show up. And I could imagine, and Dave said, looking back at me, did, did you play? <laughs> I don't believe if I'm looking at your stature that you're playing football. Not at all. But we talk in terms of we. Why? We have buy-in. We have emotional buy-in. We have an engagement or an attachment to that which we are speaking. And so we speak in terms of we. We. And so what Paul, I mean, what Don is saying here, and Paul says it actually quite often as being fellow workers or fellow laborers in the gospel, is he's saying, I love Gaius because he's a team player. This we thing, yeah, he does this well. Keep doing this to missionaries as they keep coming through your church, through your routing. Keep thinking in terms of we. Now, I know as a missions committee and as a missions board, we talk about this all the time. There are various ministries that we support, and we talk about some of them from the pulpit, or we have Craig come back and Megan come back, and they talk in terms of, this is what we did because of your support. And sometimes it's hard to grasp the buy-in, but get on the same page because he's talking about the gospel, and we're supporting, we're praying for, we're encouraging those things which are going on overseas. We're praying. We're laboring with them by extension. Our hearts are with them as they share the gospel. So John is encouraging those believers who would host people who have the same name tied to them, that being Christ, you are a partaker in the work with them. You're a laborer, co-laboring with them as they go out, even though you are at home and aren't able to do so. So then John moves on to a man named Diotrephes, who's evidently engaged his church and maybe even someone who's influential, or maybe at minimum certainly wanted to be. What I want to do is bring you back to verse 1. Remember how John starts his letter, which is not by accident. The elder, John, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. John uses his apostolic authority to set the tone not only in commending Gaius, but also in dealing with Diotrephes. He's not playing around. He's not just throwing out his title just for kicks. This is a serious scenario. Everything that he's addressing in here. It's one thing to get a letter from someone threatening to sue you. It's another thing to get a letter from that someone's lawyer. You read it quite differently. It heightens in its seriousness. This is what John does when he says, this is who I am, and this is who I'm writing to. Understand that. Take note. This is John, the apostle. This is me, the elder. Know who I am. Know who's writing to you. So John points out four primary ways in which the atrophies is causing division in the church. Number one, in verse nine, he says, he likes to put himself first. That's pretty, pretty self-explanatory there. He's selfish. The atrophies is selfish. He does not think in terms of the body of Christ. His mantra might be, there's no I in team, but, but there's an M and an E. There's a me in team. And so the atrophies is not thinking at all about the greater body and the greater good when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to coming together, he's thinking of himself and himself only. In verse 9, going into verse 10, he says this, he does not acknowledge our authority by talking wicked nonsense. In other words, he's a usurper of authority. He wants that control, particularly that of the apostolic kind. He doesn't care who God has appointed as pastor or overseer, namely the apostle John. So he goes on and on and lets his tongue become a rudder for Satan, calling his talk Wicked nonsense. James addresses this well in chapter 3 of his own letter, starting in verse 6. He says this, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining 
the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The way in which he was speaking was no small thing. It wasn't about just a disagreement with maybe a scriptural point or maybe a different view on that. What he was doing with his tongue is he was damaging the body of Christ. He was speaking against the authority of the Word of God and who Christ is, and thus damaging the church. This comes from, as James would say, from hell itself. This was a serious thing. Watch your tongue, he's saying. Watch your tongue. In verse 10, he says this. This is the third thing. He refuses to welcome the brothers. As opposed to Gaius, Diotrephes is inhospitable. And rejecting God's people who come in the name of the truth, John is saying that he's rejecting the truth itself. Diotrephes' actions speak for themselves regarding the state of his heart. He might be saying, stay away from them. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. John says, this isn't a good thing. If you undermine what we're saying, you're undermining us. And we represent what God specifically said to us through Christ and the person of Christ. You can't do that. This is not healthy for the church. This is certainly not healthy for Diotrephes. And in verse 10, the last thing he says, he not only stops those who want to welcome the brothers, but he puts them out of the church. He's now a hindrance to the work of the gospel, both within their church and around their community, physically and spiritually. Now, maybe I think it might be hard to picture because we are not a house church, per se. Uh, we live in a, an over-evangelized culture, or at least I'll say an over-resourced culture. We don't have to go down any street corner and we will find a church. We'll know that there's a gathering of people. Um, it's not to say that everybody embraces Christ or that everybody correctly knows Christ, but in America, we don't have a lot of house churches, even with new movements attempting to start and starting today. This is not a common scenario. However, the same attitude is alive and well. Let me read to you this. This is from Pastor Chapo Mwanza. He's in Zambia, so don't think this is just a, a problem in America. He says this, These are four members today who tear down the church. There is a member who loves to be an armchair critic. Armchair critics are bent on finding fault with what others are doing, but they're doing nothing themselves. They're apathetic to things that are going on and are disappointed when you succeed. They're quick to condemn and slow to commend. They falsely place themselves as judge, and you never hear them admit they're wrong. Cynics can never be pleased nor satisfied. That's the first person. The second person is the member who never attends. Non-attending members are an oxymoron. They don't want to serve and use their gifts to edify other believers, and by not attending, they actually remove themselves from the platform where they can minister and be ministered to. Over time, they harm the unity and the mission of the church. Number three, the member with a divisive spirit. Divisive people are often driven by a desire to be in charge. They want their opinions heard and implemented and near total agreement from everyone else. Divisive people expect you to consult them about an issue, and if you don't consult them in particular, they rise out and lash out. And number four, the member who loves to meddle and to gossip, a.k.a. the busy body. Mothers often gossip. They're in the business of gathering information about people and their affairs with the purpose of sharing it with others. They have an inquisitiveness masked as care and concern, when in actual fact they simply cannot mind their own business. Busybodies cause strife between the saints and always find themselves in the middle of conflict between others. The armchair quarterback or critic, the non-attending member, the divisive member, and the busybody, they all have common thread self-centeredness. 
They missed the very essence of salvation. They failed to love God and love people with every ounce of their being. Folks, the same things are happening today. It's certainly motivated by the enemy's desire to seek, kill, to destroy, to divide over petty things, to exchange our unity and our love for God and thus for each other and be divisive because we want to build our own attention, our own kingdoms, our own desires. We want to feel like we're in control and the church suffers for it. Unity in the church and among the brethren and our love for each other is paramount when it comes to understanding what Christianity is. And lastly, there is Demetrius. Demetrius is the one who carried the letter from John to Gaius, coming right off the heels of addressing Diotrephes. John juxtaposes his divisive behavior with that of Demetrius. In other words, verses 9 through 12 might read, and these are my own words, Beloved, do not follow Diotrephes' footsteps and imitate evil as it shows that he talks about God with his mouth, but his actions show that he has not truly encountered God. Rather, imitate good as if you have truly been in God's presence, like Demetrius. Trust me, others will notice. John goes on to show that in two different ways, Demetrius' life is both vouched for and is to be commended. The first thing he says is in regard to his character, that people testify to his character. In verse 12, he has received a good testimony from everyone. Like, nobody's saying anything bad about Demetrius. He's a good guy. He loves the Lord. Everyone is testifying to his goodness. People not only like him, but they trust him. Often, the person carrying the letter would actually interpret. So, you've got John who's giving this letter to Demetrius. Demetrius is then delivering it to Gaius. And Gaius is probably going to read it to the church, not knowing that this is going to be for all of us some 2,000 years later. But he's giving it to him. And so what would happen is that if Gaius didn't quite understand some things in the letter... Demetrius would have been able to explain either the intention or the heart behind what is being said in the letter. So John is commending Demetrius' character, knowing that he is the very words of John, which is motivated by the Holy Spirit, so that the church knows and is built up and is edified. So his character is important in this. And so he juxtaposes Diotrephes' character in imitating evil with Demetrius' in imitating good, saying, hey, he's carrying the letter. He's reputable. Trust him. Secondly, in verse 12, what is testified is the truth itself testified to his testimony. That's an interesting picture, a word picture. The truth itself testifies to him, right? I mentioned this when we were in 1 John, but it's almost as if Paul were here and using his words in Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We have the Spirit working itself in our lives, actually speaking for us and in through us. When God's Spirit has truly made us alive and is dwelling in us, it becomes very evident for those who are looking on. Demetrius is a man who loved God, is a man who is in Christ, is a man who carried Christ, and it showed for everyone to see. Thus, John is saying, here's my letter, understand it. Don't be evil, like Diotrephes. Don't sow into that, but sow into that which is beneficial for God's kingdom, for his people, for loving his people. So, he concludes his letter by saying this. He ends it in verse 13 by stating that he has much more to say, but pen and ink fall short. Face-to-face is the best way to communicate his heart to Gaius and to those in Christ who worship with him. Pastor Aaron has said for the last several weeks that John is conveying to Christians is that what we say and what we rightly believe about Christ 
must bear fruit in actions of love. What we say and what we believe rightly has to come out through our actions toward one another, especially towards those who carry the truth. Other believers, people you may know or may, you may not know, that's why inviting someone over to your house that you've never met in this congregation before over the last five years, 15 years, 20 years, should be something that's inviting, something that you'd want to do. Why? Because your common ground isn't where you sit, isn't your socioeconomic status, it's where you are in Christ, who you are in Christ, what you share in common. It's the Spirit working in and through you both. That's what brings you joy in your fellowship. And though we may not consistently have itinerant missionaries in our current American culture, showing hospitality to one another has always been a hallmark of Christian community. We live in a day and age where both children and adults are discipled in community via their phones and social media accounts, attempting to mimic personal engagement. However, even John, at the end of his letter, lets his readers know that pen and paper, they're just not sufficient. He just wants to spend time face-to-face and share lives together in Christ. Church, look up. Put your phones down. Open your doors. Open your houses. Share a meal. And share your lives with each other. It should be a time of rejoicing knowing what Christ has done for each of us. I'm not saying every single time it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that your household has to be perfect. I'm not saying that they expect a three or four course dinner. Maybe it's just literally a Twix bar. There are plenty of extra Twix bars in your houses right now if your kids have not decimated their Halloween candy. Invite someone over. Care for them. Love them. Open your lives and share with them. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. As Frank will tell you, my house has things that aren't aligned right. My light switches aren't right. Okay? Open your homes. People want to share lives because Christ has done something that's special to us. And that's why we unite. And that's specifically why we unite on Sundays. And so as we go into communion, this is something that we look to do. We gather together around the person and the work of Christ, knowing that his sacrifice has put us together into one body of believers. Amen?